Book Five, Chapter Thirty Two of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Five, Chapter Thirty Two. Naturally, it was during their two months of autumn travel that Ellesmere and Catherine first realized in detail what Ellesmere's act was to mean to them as husband and wife in the future. Each left England with the most tender and heroic resolves. And no one who knows anything of life will need to be told that even for these two finely-natured people such resolves were infinitely easier to make than to carry out. "'I will not preach to you. I will not persecute you,' Catherine had said to her husband at the moment of her first shock and anguish. And she did her utmost, poor thing, to keep her word. All through the innumerable bitternesses which accompanied Ellesmere's withdrawal from Muirwell, the letters which followed them, the remonstrances of public and private friends, the paragraphs which found their way, do what they would, into the newspapers, the pain of deserting, as it seemed to her, certain poor and helpless folk who had been taught to look to her and Robert, and whose bewildered lamentations came to them through young Armistead. Through all this she held her peace. She did her best to soften Robert's grief. She never once reproached him with her own. But at the same time the inevitable separation of their inmost hopes and beliefs had thrown her back on herself, had immensely strengthened that Puritan independent fibre in her which her youth had developed and which her happy marriage had only temporarily masked, not weakened. Never had Catherine believed so strongly and intensely as now, when the husband, who had been the guide and inspirer of her religious life, had given up the old faith and practices. By virtue of a kind of nervous instinctive dread, his relaxations bred increased rigidity in her. Often, when she was alone, or at night, she was seized with a lonely and awful sense of responsibility. Oh, let her guard her faith, not only for her own sake, her child's, her lord's, but for his, that it might be given to her patience at last to lead him back. And the only way in which it seemed to her possible to guard it was to set up certain barriers of silence. She feared that fiery, persuasive quality in Robert she had so often seen at work on other people. With him, conviction was life. It was the man himself, to an extraordinary degree. How was she to resist the pressure of those new ardours with which his mind was filling? She who loved him, except by building, at any rate for the time, an enclosure of silence round her Christian beliefs. It was in some ways a pathetic repetition of the situation between Robert and the squire in the early days of their friendship, but in Catherine's mind there was no troubling presence of new knowledge conspiring from within with the forces without. At this moment of her life she was more passionately convinced than ever that the only knowledge truly worth having in this world was the knowledge of God's mercies in Christ. So, gradually, with a gentle persistency, she withdrew certain parts of herself from Robert's ken. She avoided certain subjects, or anything that might lead to them. She ignored the religious and philosophical books he was constantly reading. She prayed and thought alone, always for him, of him, but still resolutely alone. It was impossible, however, that so great a change in their life could be effected without a perpetual sense of breaking links, a perpetual series of dumb wounds and griefs on both sides. There came a moment when, as he sat alone one evening in a pine-wood above the lake of Geneva, Elsmere suddenly awoke to the conviction that in spite of all his efforts and illusions, 
their relation to each other was altering, dwindling, impoverishing. The terror of that summer night at Muirwell was being dismally justified. His own mind during this time was in a state of perpetual discovery, sailing the seas where there was never sand, the vast shadowy seas of speculative thought. All his life, reserved to those nearest to him, had been pain and grief to him. He was one of those people, as we know, who throw off readily, to whom sympathy, expansion, are indispensable, who suffer physically and mentally from anything cold and rigid beside them. And now, at every turn, in their talk, their reading, in many of the smallest details of their common existence, Elsmere began to feel the presence of this cold and rigid something. He was ever conscious of self-defence on her side, of pains drawing back on his. And with every succeeding effort of his at self-repression, it seemed to him as though fresh nails were driven into the coffin of that old free habit of perfect confidence which had made the heaven of their life since they had been man and wife. He sat on for long, through the September evening, pondering, wrestling. Was it simply inevitable, the natural result of his own act, and of her antecedents, to which he must submit himself, as to any mutilation or loss of power in the body? The young lover and husband rebelled, the believer rebelled, against the admission. Probably, if his change had left him ankleless and forsaken, as it leaves many men, he would have been ready enough to submit, in terror lest his own forlornness should bring about hers. But in spite of the intellectual confusion which inevitably attends any wholesale reconstruction of man's platform of action, he had never been more sure of God, or the divine aims of the world, than now, never more open than now, amid this exquisite alpine world, to those passionate moments of religious trust which a man's eternal defiance to the iron silences about him. Originally, as we know, he had shrunk from the thought of change in her corresponding to his own. Now that his own foothold was strengthening, his longing for a new union was overpowering that old dread. The proselytizing instinct may be never quite morally defensible, even as between husband and wife. Nevertheless, in all strong, convinced and ardent souls it exists, and must be reckoned with. At last, one evening, he was overcome by a sudden impulse which neutralised for the moment his nervous dread of hurting her. Some little incident of their day together was rankling, and it was borne in upon him that almost any violent protest on her part would have been preferable to this constant soft evasion of hers, which was gradually, imperceptibly, dividing heart from heart. They were in a bare attic room at the very top of one of the huge newly-built hotels which during the last twenty years have invaded all the high places of Switzerland. The August, which had been so hot in England, had been rainy and broken in Switzerland. But it had been followed by a warm and mellow September, and the favourite hotels below a certain height were still full. When the Ellesmeres arrived at Les Avants, this scantily furnished garret, out of which some servants had been hurried to make room for them, was all that could be found. They, however, liked it for its space and its view. They looked sideways from their windows on to the upper end of the lake, three thousand feet below them. Opposite, across the blue water, rose a grandiose rampart of mountains, the stage on which from morn till night the sun went through a long transformation scene of beauty. The water was marked every now and then by passing boats and steamers, tiny specks which served to measure the vastness of all around them. To right and left, spurs of green mountains shut out alike the lower lake and the icy splendours of the valley depths profound. 
What made the charm of the narrow prospect was, first, the sense it produced in the spectator of hanging dizzily above the lake, with infinite air below them, and, then, the magical effects of dawn and evening, when wreaths of mist would blot out the valley and the lake, and leave the eye of the watcher face to face across the fathomless abyss with the majestic mountain mass, and its attendant retinue of clouds, as though they and he were alone in the universe. It was a peaceful September night. From the open window beside him, Robert could see a world of high moonlight, limited and invaded on all sides by sharp black masses of shade. A few rare lights glimmered on the spreading Alp below, and every now and then a breath of music came to them, wafted from a military band playing a mile or two away. They had been climbing most of the afternoon, and Catherine was lying down, her brown hair loose about her, the thin oval of her face and clear line of brow just visible in the dim candlelight. Suddenly he stretched out his hand for his Greek testament, which was always near him, though there had been no common reading since that bitter day of his confession to her. The mark still lay in the well-worn volume at the point reached in their last reading at Muirwell. He opened upon it, and began the eleventh chapter of St. John. Catherine trembled when she saw him take up the book. He began without preface, treating the passage before him in his usual way, that is to say, taking verse after verse in the Greek, translating and commenting. She never spoke all through, and at last he closed the little testament, and bent towards her, his look full of feeling. "'Catherine, can't you let me—will you never let me tell you how now—how that story, how the old things affect me, from the new point of view? You always stop me when I try. I believe you think of me as having thrown it all away. Would it not comfort you sometimes if you knew that, although much of the Gospels, this very raising of Lazarus, for instance, seem to me no longer true in the historical sense, still they are always full to me of an ideal, a poetical truth? Lazarus may not have died and come to life, may never have existed, but still to me, now as always, love for Jesus of Nazareth is resurrection and life. He spoke with the most painful diffidence, the most wistful tenderness. There was a pause. Then Catherine said in a rigid, constrained voice, If the Gospels are not true in fact, as history, as reality, I cannot see how they are true at all, or, or of any value. The next minute she rose, and going to the little wooden dressing-table, she began to brush out and plait for the night her straight, silky veil of hair. As she passed him, Robert saw her face pale and set. He sat quiet another moment or two, and then he went towards her and took her in his arms. "'Catherine,' he said to her, his lips trembling, "'am I never to speak my mind to you any more? Do you mean always to hold me at arm's length, to refuse always to hear what I have to say, in defence of the change which has cost us both so much?' She hesitated, trying hard to restrain herself. But it was of no use. She broke into tears, quiet but most bitter tears. "'Robert, I cannot—' Oh, you must see I cannot. It is not because I am hard, but because I am weak. How can I stand up against you? I dare not, I dare not. If you were not yourself, not my husband—' Her voice dropped. 
Robert guessed that at the bottom of her resistance there was an intolerable fear of what love might do with her if she once gave it an opening. He felt himself cruel, brutal, and yet an urgent sense of all that was at stake drove him on. "'I would not press or worry you, God knows,' he said, almost piteously, kissing her forehead as she lay against him. "'But remember, Catherine, I, I cannot put these things aside. I once thought I could, that I could fall back on my historical work and leave religious matters alone as far as criticism was concerned. But I cannot. They fill my mind more and more. I feel more and more impelled to search them out, and to put my conclusions about them into shape.' And all the time this is going on, are you and I to remain strangers to one another in all that concerns our truest life? Are we, Catherine? He spoke in a low voice of intense feeling. She turned her face and pressed her lips to his hand. Both have the scene in the woodpath after her flight and return in their minds, and both were filled with the despairing sense of the difficulty of living, not through great crises, but through the detail of every day. "'Could you not work at other things?' she whispered. He was silent, looking straight before him into the moonlit shimmer and white spectral hazes of the valley, his arms still round her. "'No,' he burst out at last, "'not till I have satisfied myself. I feel it burning within me, like a command from God, to work out the problem, to make it clearer to myself, and to others,' he added deliberately. Her heart sank within her. The last words called up before her a dismal future of controversy and publicity, in which at every step she would be condemning her husband. "'And all this time, all these years, perhaps,' he went on, before in her perplexity she could find words, "'is my wife never going to let me speak freely to her? Am I to act, think, judge without her knowledge? Is she to know less of me than a friend, less even than the public for whom I write or speak?' It seemed intolerable to him, all the more that every moment they stood there together it was being impressed upon him that in fact this was what she meant, what she had contemplated from the beginning. "'Robert, I cannot defend myself against you,' she cried, again clinging to him. "'Oh, think for me. You know what I feel, that I dare not risk what is not mine.' He kissed her again, and then moved away from her to the window. It began to be plain to him that his effort was merely futile, and had better not have been made. But his heart was very sore. "'Do you ever ask yourself?' he said presently, looking steadily into the night. "'No, I don't think you can, Catherine. What part, the reasoning faculty, that faculty which marks us out from the animal, was meant to play in life? Did God give it us simply that you might trample upon it and ignore it?' both in yourself and me?" She had dropped into a chair, and sat with clasped hands, her hair falling about her white dressing-gown, and framing the noble-featured face blanched by the moonlight. She did not attempt a reply, but the melancholy of an invincible resolution, which was, so to speak, not her own doing, but rather was like a necessity imposed upon her from outside, breathed through her silence. He turned and looked at her. She raised her arms, and the gesture reminded him for a moment of the Donatello figure in the Muirwell Library, the same delicate, austere beauty, the same tenderness, the same underlying reserve. 
he took her outstretched hands and held them against his breast. His hotly beating heart told him that he was perfectly right, and that to accept the barriers she was setting up would impoverish all their future life together. But he could not struggle with the woman on whom he had already inflicted so severe a practical trial. Moreover, he felt strangely, as he stood there, the danger of rousing in her those illimitable possibilities of the religious temper, the dread of which had once before risen spectre-like in his heart. So, once more, he yielded. She rewarded him with all the charm, all the delightfulness, of which under the circumstances she was mistress. They wandered up the Rhone Valley, through the St. Gotthard, and spent a fortnight between Como and Lugano. During these days her one thought was to revive and refresh him, and he let her tend him, and lent himself to the various heroic futilities by which she would try, as part of her nursing mission, to make the future look less empty and their distress less real. Of course, under all this delicate give and take, both suffered. Both felt that the promise of their marriage had failed them, and that they had come dismally down to a second best. But after all they were young, and the autumn was beautiful, and though they hurt each other, they were alone together and constantly, passionately interested in each other. Italy, too, softened all things, even Catherine's English tone and temper. As long as the delicious luxury of the Italian autumn, with all its primitive pagan suggestiveness, was still round them, as long as they were still among the cities of the Lombard Plain, that battleground and highway of nations which roused all Robert's historical enthusiasm and set him reading, discussing, thinking, in his old impetuous way, about something else than minute problems of Christian evidence. The newborn friction between them was necessarily reduced to a minimum. But, with their return home, with their plunge into London life, the difficulties of the situation began to define themselves more sharply. In after years, one of Catherine's dreariest memories was the memory of their first instalment in the Bedford Square house. Robert's anxiety to make it pleasant and homelike was pitiful to watch. He had none of the modern passion for upholstery, and probably the vaguest notions of what was aesthetically correct. But during their furnishing days he was never tired of wandering about in search of pretty things, a rug, a screen, an engraving, which might brighten the rooms in which Catherine was to live. He would put everything in its place with a restless eagerness, and then Catherine would be called in and would play her part bravely. She would smile and ask questions and admire, and then, when Robert had gone, she would move slowly to the window and look out at the great mass of the British Museum frowning beyond the little dingy strip of garden, with a sick longing in her heart for the Muirwell cornfield, the wood-path, the village, the free air-bathed spaces of heath and common. Oh, this huge London with its unfathomable poverty and its heartless wealth! How it oppressed and bewildered her! Its mere grime and squalor, its murky, poisoned atmosphere, were a perpetual trial to the countrywoman brought up amid the dash of mountain streams and the scents of mountain pastures. She drooped physically for a time, as did the child. But morally? With Catherine everything really depended on the moral state. She could have followed Robert to a London living with a joy and hope which would have completely deadened all these repulsions of the senses now so active in her. 
but without this inner glow, in the presence of the profound spiritual difference circumstance had developed between her and the man she loved, everything was a burden. Even her religion, though she clung to it with an ever-increasing tenacity, failed at this period to bring her much comfort. Every night it seemed to her that the day had been one long and dreary struggle to make something out of nothing, and in the morning the night too seemed to have been alive with conflict. All thy waves and thy storms have gone over me. Robert guessed it all, and whatever remorseful love could do to soften such a strain and burden, he tried to, to do. He encouraged her to find work among the poor. He tried in the tenderest ways to interest her in the great spectacle of London life, which was already, in spite of yearning and regret, beginning to fascinate and absorb himself. But their standards were now so different that she was constantly shrinking from what attracted him, or painfully judging what was to him merely curious and interesting. He was really more and more impressed by her intellectual limitations, though never consciously would he have allowed himself to admit them, and she was more and more bewildered by what constantly seemed to her a breaking up of principle, a relaxation of moral fibre. And the work among the poor was difficult. Robert instinctively felt that for him to offer his services in charitable work to the narrow evangelical whose church Catherine had joined would be merely to invite rebuff so that even in the love and care of the unfortunate they were separated. For he had not yet found a sphere of work, and if he had, Catherine's invincible impulse in these matters was always to attach herself to the authorities and powers that be. He could only acquiesce when she suggested applying to Mr. Clarendon for some charitable occupation for herself. After her letter to him, Catherine had an interview with the vicar at his home. She was puzzled by the start and sudden pause for recollection with which he received her name, the tone of compassion which crept into his talk with her, the pitying look and grasp of the hand with which he dismissed her. Then, as she walked home, it flashed upon her that she had seen a copy, some weeks old, of The Record lying on the good man's table, the very copy which contained Robert's name among the lists of men who, during the last ten years, had thrown up the Anglican ministry. The delicate face flushed miserably from brow to chin. Pitied for being Robert's wife. Oh, monstrous! Incredible! Meanwhile, Robert, manlike, in spite of all the griefs and sorenesses of the position, had immeasurably the best of it. In the first place, such incessant activity of mind as his is in itself both tonic and narcotic. It was constantly generating in him fresh purposes and hopes, constantly deadening regret, and pushing the old things out of sight. He was full of many projects, literary and social, but they were all in truth the fruits of one long experimental process, the passionate attempt of the reason to justify to itself the God in whom the heart believed. Abstract thought, as Mr. Gray saw, had had comparatively little to do with the Ellesmere's relinquishment of the Church of England. But as soon as the Christian bases of faith were overthrown, that faith had naturally to find for itself other supports and attachments. For faith itself, in God and a spiritual order, had been so wrought into the nature by years of reverent and adoring living that nothing could destroy it. With Ellesmere, as with all men of religious temperament, belief in Christianity and faith in God had not at the outset been a matter of reasoning at all, but of sympathy, feeling, association, 
daily experience. Then the intellect had broken in and destroyed or transformed the belief in Christianity. But after the crash, faith emerged as strong as ever, only craving and eager to make a fresh peace, a fresh compact with the reason. Ellesmere had heard Gray say long ago, in one of the few moments of real intimacy he had enjoyed with him at Oxford, "'My interest in philosophy springs solely from the chance it offers me of knowing something more of God.' Driven by the same thirst, he too threw himself into the same quest, pushing his way laboriously through the philosophical borderlands of science, through the ethical speculation of the day, through the history of man's moral and religious past. And while on the one hand the intellect was able to contribute an ever stronger support to the faith which was the man, on the other the sphere in him of a patient ignorance which abstains from all attempt at knowing what man cannot know, and substitutes trust for either knowledge or despair, was perpetually widening. I take my stand on conscience and the moral life, was the upshot of it all. In them I find my God. As for all these various problems, ethical and scientific, which you press upon me, my pessimist friend, I too am bewildered. I too have no explanation to offer. But I trust and wait. In spite of them, beyond them, I have abundantly enough for faith, for hope, for action. We may quote a passage or two from some letters of his, written at this time to the young Armitstead, who had taken his place at Muirwell, and was still there till Mowbray Ellesmere should appoint a new man. Armitstead had been a college friend of Ellesmere's. He was a high churchman of a singularly gentle and delicate type, and the manner in which he had received Ellesmere's story on the day of his arrival at Muirwell had permanently endeared himself to the teller of it. At the same time, the defection from Christianity of a man who at Oxford had been to him the object of much hero-worship, and, since Oxford, an example of pastoral efficiency, had painfully affected young Armistead, and he began a correspondence with Robert which was in many ways a relief to both. In Switzerland and Italy, when his wife's gentle inexorable silence became too oppressive to him, Robert would pour himself out in letters to Armistead, and the correspondence did not altogether cease with his return to London. To the squire, during the same period, Ellesmere also wrote frequently, but rarely or never on religious matters. On one occasion Armistead had been pressing the favourite Christian dilemma, Christianity or nothing. Inside Christianity, light and certainty, outside it, chaos. If it were not for the Gospels of the Church, I should be a positivist to-morrow. Your theism is a mere arbitrary hypothesis, at the mercy of any rival philosophical theory. How, regarding our position as precarious, you should come to regard your own as stable, is to me incomprehensible. What I conceived to be the vital difference between theism and Christianity, wrote Ellesmere in reply, is that as an explanation of things, theism can never be disproved. At the worst, it must always remain in the position of an alternative hypothesis, which the hostile man of science cannot destroy, though he is under no obligation to adopt it. Broadly speaking, it is not the facts which are in dispute, but the inference to be drawn from them. Now, considering the enormous complication of the facts, the theistic inference will, to put it at the lowest, always have its place, always command respect. The man of science may not adopt it, but by no advance of science that I, at any rate, can foresee, can it be driven out of the field. Christianity is in a totally different position. Its grounds are not philosophical, but literary and historical. 
it rests not upon all fact, but upon a special group of facts. It is, and will always remain, a great literary and historical problem, a question of documents and testimony. Hence the Christian explanation is vulnerable in a way in which the theistic explanation can never be vulnerable. The contention, at any rate, of persons in my position is that to a man who has had the special training required, and in whom this training has not been neutralised by any overwhelming bias of temperament, it can be as clearly demonstrated that the miraculous Christian story rests on a tissue of mistake, as it can be demonstrated that the Isidorean decretals were a forgery, or the correspondence of Paul and Seneca a pious fraud, or that the medieval belief in witchcraft was the product of physical ignorance and superstition. "'You say,' he wrote again, in another connection, to Armistead, from Milan, "'you say you think my later letters have been far too aggressive and positive. I, too, am astonished at myself. I do not know my own mood. It is so clear, so sharp, so combative. Is it the spectacle of Italy, I wonder, of a country practically without religion, the spectacle, in fact, of Latin Europe as a whole, and the practical atheism in which it is engulfed. My dear friend, the problem of the world at this moment is how to find a religion, some great conception which shall be once more capable, as the old were capable, of welding societies and keeping man's brutish elements in check. Surely Christianity of the traditional sort is failing everywhere, less obviously with us, and in Teutonic Europe generally, but egregiously, notoriously, in all the Catholic countries. We talk complacently of the decline of Buddhism, but what have we to say of the decline of Christianity? And yet this last is infinitely more striking and more tragic, inasmuch as it affects a more important section of mankind. I, at any rate, am not one of those who would seek to minimise the results of this decline for human life, nor can I bring myself to believe that positivism or evolutional morality will ever satisfy the race. In the period of social struggle which undeniably lies before us, both in the old and the new world, are we then to witness a war of classes, unsoftened by the ideal hopes, the ideal law of faith? It looks like it. What does the artisan class, what does the town democracy throughout Europe, care any longer for Christian checks or Christian sanctions, as they have been taught to understand them? Superstition, in certain parts of rural Europe, there is in plenty, but wherever you get intelligence, and therefore movement, you get at once either indifference to, or a passionate break with, Christianity. And consider what it means, what it will mean, this atheism of the great democracies which are to be our masters. The world has never seen anything like it. Such spiritual anarchy and poverty combined with such material power and resource. Every society, Christian and non-Christian, has always till now had its ideal of greater or less ethical value, its appeal to something beyond man. Has Christianity brought us to this, that the Christian nations are to be the first in the world's history to try the experiment of a life without faith, that life which you and I, at any rate, are agreed in thinking a life worthy only of the brute? Oh, forgive me! These things must hurt you. They would have hurt me in old days. But they burn within me, and you bid me speak out. What if it be God himself who is driving his painful lesson home to me, to you, to the world? What does it mean, this gradual growth of what we call infidelity, of criticism and science on the one hand, this gradual death of the old traditions on the other? Sin, you answer, 
the enmity of the human mind against God, the momentary triumph of Satan. And so you acquiesce, heavy-hearted, in God's present defeat, looking for vengeance and requital hereafter. Well, I am not so ready to believe in man's capacity to rebel against his Maker. Where you see ruin and sin, I see the urgent process of divine education, God's steady, ineluctable command to put away childish things, the pressure of His Spirit on ours towards new ways of worship and new forms of love. And after a while, it was with these new ways of worship and new forms of love that the mind began to be perpetually occupied. The break with the old things was no sooner complete than the eager soul, incapable then as always of resting in negation or opposition, pressed passionately forward to a new synthesis, not only speculative but practical. Before it rose perpetually, the haunting vision of another palace of faith, another church or company of the faithful, which was to become the shelter of human aspiration amid the desolation and anarchy caused by the crashing of the old. How many men and women must have gone through the same strait as itself? How many must be watching with it through the darkness for the rising of a new city of God? One afternoon, close upon Christmas, he found himself in Parliament Square, on his way towards Westminster Bridge and the Embankment. The beauty of a sunset sky behind the Abbey arrested him, and he stood leaning over the railings beside the Peel statue to look. The day before he had passed the same spot with a German friend. His companion, a man of influence and mark in his own country, who had been brought up, however, in England and knew it well, had stopped before the Abbey and had said to him with emphasis, I never find myself in this particular spot of London without a sense of emotion and reverence. Other people feel that in treading the Forum of Rome they are at the centre of human things. I am more thrilled by Westminster than Rome. Your venerable Abbey is to me the symbol of a nationality to which the modern world owes obligations it could never repay. You are rooted deep in the past. You have also a future of infinite expansiveness stretching before you. Among European nations at this moment you alone have freedom in the true sense. You alone have religion. I would give a year of life to know what you will have made of your freedom and your religion two hundred years hence. As Robert recalled the words, the abbey lay before him, wrapped in the bluish haze of the winter afternoon. Only the towers rose out of the mist, grey and black against the red bands of cloud. A pair of pigeons circled round them, as careless and free in flight as though they were alone with the towers and the sunset. Below, the streets were full of people. The omnibuses rolled to and fro. The lamps were just lit. Lines of struggling figures, dark in the half-light, were crossing the street here and there. And to all the human rush and swell below, the quiet of the abbey and the infinite red distances of sky gave a peculiar pathos and significance. Robert filled his eye and sense, and then walked quickly away towards the embankment. Carrying the poetry and grandeur of England's past with him, he turned his face eastward to the great new-made London on the other side of St Paul's, the London of the democracy, of the nineteenth century, and of the future. He was wrestling with himself, a prey to one of those critical moments of life when circumstance seems once more to restore to us the power of choice, of distributing it, yes or no, among the great solicitations which meet the human spirit on its path from silence to silence. 
the thought of his friend's reverence, and of his own personal debt towards the country to whose long travail of centuries he owed all his own joys and faculties, was hot within him. Here and here did England help me, how can I help England, say? Ah, oh, that vast, chaotic London south and east of the great church! He already knew something of it. A liberal clergyman there, set in the very blackest, busiest heart of it, had already made him welcome on Mr. Gray's introduction. He had gone with this good man on several occasions through some little fraction of that teeming world, now so hidden and peaceful between the murky river mists and the cleaner light-filled greys of the sky. He had heard much, and pondered a good deal, the quick mind caught at once by the differences, some tragic, some merely curious and stimulating, between the monotonous life of his own rural folk, and the mad rush, the voracious hurry, the bewildering appearances and disappearances, the sudden engulfments, of working London. Moreover, he had spent a Sunday or two wandering among the East End churches. There, rather than among the streets and courts outside, as it had seemed to him, lay the tragedy of the city. Such emptiness, such desertion, such a hopeless breach between the great craving need outside and the boon offered it within. Here and there, indeed, a patch of bright-coloured success, as it claimed to be, where the primitive tendency of man towards the organised excitement of religious ritual, visible in all nations and civilizations, had been appealed to with more energy and more results than usual. But in general, blank failure, or rather obvious want of success, as the devoted men now beating the void there were themselves the first to admit, with pain and patient submission to the inscrutable will of God. But is it not time we assured ourselves, he was always asking, whether God is still in truth behind the offer man is perpetually making to his brother man on his behalf? He was behind it once, and it had efficacy, had power. But now, what if all these processes of so-called destruction and decay were but the mere workings of that divine plastic force which is for ever moulding human society? What if these beautiful, venerable things which had fallen from him, as from thousands of his fellows, represented, in the present stage of the world's history, not the props, but the hindrances of man? And if all these large things were true, as he believed, what should be the individual's part in this transition England? Surely the least a part of plain sincerity of act and speech, a correspondence as perfect as could be reached between the inner faith and the outer word and deed. So much of the least was clearly required of him. Do not imagine, he said to himself, as though with a fierce dread of possible self-delusion, that it is in you to play any great, any commanding part. Shun the thought of it, if it were possible. But let me do what is given me to do. Here, in this human wilderness, may I spend whatever of time or energy or faculty may be mine, in the faithful attempt to help forward the new house of faith that is to be, though my utmost efforts should but succeed in laying some obscure stone in still unseen foundations. Let me try and hand on to some other human soul, or souls, before I die, the truth which has freed, and which is now sustaining, my own heart. Can any man do more? Is not every man who feels any certainty in him, whatever, bound to do as much? What matter if the wise folks scoff, if even at times, and in a certain sense, one seems to one's self ridiculous? 
absurdly lonely and powerless. All great changes are preceded by numbers of sporadic, and as the bystander thinks, impotent efforts. But while the individual effort sinks, drowned perhaps in mockery, the general movement quickens, gathers force, we know not how, and, while the tired wave vainly breaking seems here no painful inch to gain, far back through creeks and inlets making, comes silent, flooding in the main. Darkness sank over the river. All the grey and purple distance with its dim edge of spars and domes against the sky, all the vague interweaving blacknesses of street or bridge or railway station were starred and patterned with lights. The vastness, the beauty of the city, filled him with a sense of mysterious attraction, and as he walked on with his face uplifted to it, it was as though he took his life in his hand and flung it afresh into the human gulf. What does it matter if one's work be raw and uncomely? All that lies outside the great organised traditions of an age must always look so. Let me bear my witness bravely, not spending life in speech, but not undervaluing speech. Above all, not being ashamed or afraid of it, because otherwise people may prefer a policy of silence. A man has but the one puny life, the one tiny spark of faith. Better be venturesome with both, for God's sake, than over-cautious, over-thrifty. And to his own master he standeth or faileth. Plenty of work of all kinds, literary and practical, thoughts of preaching in some bare hidden room to men and women orphaned and stranded like himself, began to crowd upon him. The old clerical instinct in him winced at some of them. Robert had nothing of the sectary about him by nature. He was always too deeply and easily affected by the great historic existences about him. But when the Oxford man, or the ex-official of one of the most venerable and decorous of societies, protested, the believer, or if you will the enthusiast, put the protest by. And so the dream gathered substance and stayed with him, till at last he found himself at his own door. As he closed it behind him, Catherine came out into the pretty old hall from the dining-room. "'Robert, have you walked all the way?' "'Yes, I came along the embankment. Such a beautiful evening.' He slipped his arm inside hers, and they mounted to the stairs together. She glanced at him wistfully. She was perfectly aware that these months were to him months of incessant travail of spirit, and she caught at this moment the old strenuous look of eye and brow she knew so well. A year ago, and every thought of his mind had been open to her, and now she herself had shut them out, but her heart sank within her. She turned and kissed him. He bent his head fondly over her. But inwardly all the ardour of his mood collapsed at the touch of her. For the protests of a world in arms can be withstood with joy, but the protest that steals into your heart, that takes love's garb and uses love's ways, there is the difficulty. End of Book 5, Chapter 32